Alrighty, before I begin, how about I pray and ask for God's help uh, with this complicated little passage. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here this evening uh, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, good fences make good neighbours, or the one I like, a fence between keeps neighbours keen. Now, I like this proverb. Uh, I think it's actually good because it, it shows us that setting appropriate boundaries are good and healthy, and it's a good skill to have in many areas of life. But while this proverb encourages healthy boundaries, it doesn't take much for these boundaries to turn into reasons for division and hostility, to turn fences into fortresses. And we as a society, well, we hardly need help doing this. We hardly need help dividing ourselves because we do this all the time. And to prove this theory, I'm going to run a quick social experiment. I'm just going to put up on the slide a picture of a very commonly used item. It's an item that has caused divisions in recent days, especially if you're a fan of McDonald's Thick Shakes or the Humble Slurpee. This, friends, is the humble paper straw. See, I don't know what you feel when you see this picture, but I do know that if you ask enough people about it, you'll get very mixed reactions over this. Uh, My wife is a nurse, for example. Uh, She finds these straws incredibly inconvenient, and the hospital subbed out all the bendy plastic ones for these. You see, for her patients, these are really inconvenient because most of them are bed-bound and leaning back. So they need that little bendy bit in order to direct the liquid into their mouth. Now, these ones don't have that and they can't bend. And so in the dialysis unit where she works, these are really inconvenient. Now, not everyone is a nurse or a patient, so others might tell you how wonderful they are because they're individually wrapped. And I mean, in this day and age of sanitization and all that, that's a great thing, right? And they, you know, if you're a fan of really fizzy Coke, well, this sucks all the fizz through it as you're drinking through the straw. But the deeper problem is that it never takes much of a push for things to start heating up. Right? When things uh, as previously inoffensive as a straw, for example, become politically charged and lead to heated discussions about uh, environmentalism, right, or climate action or whether a paper straw is just a bunch of virtue-signalling nonsense, or is the necessary change we need in order to combat certain environmental problems. And it's not just straws that fit into this category. You could throw under this vax mandates. Uh, You could throw under this racial tension and other issues with that. Uh, The receivership, we know, that cuts close to home for us even here. Next week, who we should and shouldn't vote for. Right, if we're particularly passionate about any of these issues, then we naturally start to divide ourselves. We turn ourselves into us versus them, right? And the the real divisions start occurring as relational tensions begin to rise. And we're drawn to people that are like us, that share our views, and we're repelled by those who don't. We create this dividing wall of hostility between us and the positions we hold, and then whoever they are out there with their inferior positions, In fact, the church uh, really is just a bunch of people who, if it weren't for our common salvation in Christ, to be absolutely frank, probably couldn't be in the same room together. Uh, One pastor, he described the church this way. He says, the church is God's fruitcake. 
right? And that we, the Lord's church, are a fruitcake and we're all the nuts inside of it, myself included for that. And so with that said, welcome to the Lord's fruitcake. Uh, It's good to have you along this evening. It's a good time to come because today we're going to be looking at this cake or perhaps a much better example put by Paul himself, this holy temple of which we, consisting of all different shapes, sizes, attitudes, political beliefs, all these things that we bring to the table, have been reconciled together through our common salvation in Christ. Both being reconciled to one another, but also reconciled to God himself, being built together into this holy temple made of all these complicated little parts, which are us, where God actually dwells. And today, as we look to the second half of Ephesians 2, we're going to see how God accomplishes this in us, uh, reconciling us even in our differences to each other, but also to him on that cross. Now, this doesn't mean that we will agree with everything. Uh, It doesn't mean that we'll have the same giftings in all different areas. It doesn't mean that we all have to suddenly subscribe to one particular thing and follow that to a T. There's a good nature to certain diverse thoughts and behaviours and things. But what this does mean is that our common salvation in Christ should be put above everything else. It comes first. And we'll see why in a moment. That's where we're headed this evening. Uh, So keep your Bibles open. Uh, I will have a few verses on the screen, but keep your Bibles with you as well because there's going to be a lot of uh, looking around there. So we're going to start at point one, if you have your outlines. You were once far off, divided, excluded, without hope, without God. Now, as much as paper straws have this strange ability to divide us, uh, these and even our deepest social and political divisions have nothing on the divisions that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. You see, for these guys, their divisions were part of the very air that they breathed. Uh, Much of life in the first century was a matter of who was in and who was out, right? both legally and religiously speaking. And so naturally, this affected how every area of life operated. There were some significant and fierce divisions between these groups because on the one hand, you're either God's people or you weren't. Now, if you look at your Bible, starting at verse 11... Uh, you'll see that for the Jews, the world was effectively divided up into two groups. And you were either in or out by birthright. So you were either born a Jew, which meant that you were circumcised or called the circumcision, which is a sign that you were one of God's people. If not, you were out and you were given the derogatory title of the uncircumcised or the uncircumcision. That is not one of God's people. And if you weren't one of God's people, if you were a Gentile, and again, I'm assuming most of us in this room, if not all of us are, then Paul has some news for you. In fact, Paul has five pieces of news for you. He says, firstly, you were separate from Christ, right? If you, if you know this, the Messiah, it belonged to Israelite history, not Gentile history. So that was gone. Second, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, or probably better put, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, kind of like the the country. You were separate from God's chosen people. 
Third, you were excluded. If you're excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel, then naturally you were excluded from the covenants of promise. Right? They don't apply to you either. And you've got many of those from Abraham to David and so on. Old Testament's full of them. None of those apply to you either. And the last two, well, these, they summarize uh, the first three and the result is not pretty. You are without hope, that is living outside the realm of salvation, and without God in the world. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Now that's a lot of bad news. It's kind of like a, a rushing waterfall of bad news pounding on top of you. Right? This is the equivalent of, of beating a horse when it's down, when Paul unloads this onto the Ephesians and subsequently onto us. And this is particularly bad if you consider last week's assessment, right? That we were dead in our transgressions and sins and by nature deserving of God's wrath. We'll heap all of this onto that pile and we're drowning in judgment. But I think Paul knows this as his writing. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever had bad news to give? Uh, with good news that follows, right? So there is good news after the bad news, but you do have to say the bad news. It's really important that you do. And so what you do is you say the bad news kind of quickly to get it out of the way, to get to the but, you know, there's a bit of good news on the other side as well. You know, look, mum, I know you told me not to kick a ball around the house and I I broke your favourite vase, but look, I glued it all back together. It's all good. Look, I know I crashed the car, But at least we might get a nice rental for a few weeks. Well, Paul's good news, it is much better than a nice rental car. Right? In this section, in this section of Ephesians, it almost feels like Paul is in pain when he states these five awful facts about you and me. That we were separate, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God in the world. But, and Paul can hardly control himself here, he says, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far away have been brought near. Right? Paul releases the pressure valve after all of this judgment had just come down and he's exclaiming, exclaiming that now in Jesus there is an avenue of salvation that was previously unknown to us. We were once far away but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now that we're in, Right, we're in the, the cool club, the, the salvation club. We've been accepted. The question is, what does this then mean for us? Right, does this mean that, that if the Gentiles have been brought in, we suddenly have to accept all the practices that they hold? You know, do we have to get circumcised? Ouch. Do, do we have to give up eating delicious, juicy bacon? Or do we have to worship at the temple somehow, even though it's been destroyed? You know, what, what do we do once we're in? And I think this begs the question as well, especially for morning church. They meet in a school hall, right? They don't meet in a church building, and even this building is now own. But if you consider meeting in a school hall, there's, there's questions that we go, is that even appropriate? Right? Should we be meeting in a school hall? And God's answer, the answer to this is twofold. He says, first, he makes the two groups into a new humanity, Right, so the Gentiles aren't just being accepted into kind of Judaism and, and following Jewish customs. 
and this new creation, this is just a little tip of the hat to the new creation here, but then he designates this new humanity to be his dwelling, right? Where God dwelled in the temple, we now have us. We are the temple, and God dwells with us, with Christ as the cornerstone of that temple. So in short, no, it actually doesn't matter one iota that we meet in a school hall in the mornings. In fact, in some ways, I think it's a great thing that we do that because it emphasizes the importance that God places, not on fancy buildings, not on relics or stained glass windows or anything like that, these big cathedrals that kind of give you this awe of who God is, but rather it signals that the focus is on God's people built on Christ, the people that he has chosen to dwell with. So he's reconciled all of us, uh, despite our differences, back to one another and back to himself as well. There is a horizontal reconciliation and a vertical reconciliation going on at the same time. And so this is where we're going to look at point two. I'm going to look a bit more deeply at this. But now Christ has brought you near, reconciled members of God's household. Now, in the middle section of today's passage, uh, if you look at the kind of paragraph breakup, you've got three paragraphs. We're going to be looking at the middle section here. And in here, Paul, he grabs the spotlight and he moves it all the way from the action in verses 11 and 12. So for argument's sake, let's suck verse 13 into the middle section here. Because he moves this spotlight and he shines it directly onto Jesus. And he does this for the duration of verses 13 to 18. Now, how do I know this? Well, if you scan the passage with me, if you skim down your page, you'll notice that there is a curious, sudden, and an obvious change in pronouns. While the focus in 11 and 12 was all about you, you being separated, you're excluded, you're a foreigner, you're without hope, without God, verses 13 to 18 dramatically shift gear, and we go into the third person. It's no longer about you anymore. It's all about Jesus. The passage says that he is our peace. His flesh set aside the law. His purpose was to create in himself a new humanity. He put to death our hostility, and through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The focus in this section is clearly all about Jesus. So we're going to be looking into this and see what exactly he did. So firstly, he destroyed the barrier or the dividing wall. Uh, Now, the wall Paul is talking about here is this one shown in red. So this is a little map of the temple in the first century. And there was a wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. Okay, When it came to temple worship, uh, this wall kind of separated God's people from just the onlookers. Now, the other day, I had the privilege uh, of watching the lions uh, run around and fumble a ball for 90 minutes around the Gabba. And if you've been to the Gabba, you know this place. It's pretty massive. Uh, It's huge. And there are certain seats in this stadium where you'd see better views than others. Some are closer to the action and some not so much. Well, when it came to the temple, the Gentiles, they were relegated to the cheap seats, right? They were so far from the action, that they couldn't really see what was going on at all. In fact, I don't think they could because there were other bigger walls in place in front of them even. They were literally far away from the presence of God. Literally far away, as verse 13 puts it. 
But worse than this, they couldn't get any closer because if they were to proceed past this barrier, this dividing wall, they were effectively putting their lives at risk. Because you see, all over this barrier, there was an inscription, uh, which you can still find today, it's in a, in a museum in Israel, and it read this. It said, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It's pretty serious stuff. They couldn't go past, right? They couldn't literally, geographically get close to God's presence for fear of death. And when we understand this, we understand this turn of phrase that Paul uses, this dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. There was a literal wall that divided them. But interestingly in this, I think Paul has something much, much bigger and more significant in mind than this wall. Because as I said before, it's not just a a horizontal reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. There is a vertical reconciliation between God and his people. And you see, the temple, it was made up of many, many sections. So if we have a cross-section of the kind of inside parts of the temple here, if you wanted access to God, there were further barriers in place, right? You could have been a Jew, but you still weren't allowed to go certain places. You could have been a Jew from the tribe of Levi, but you still couldn't go certain places. You could have been one of the priests, but you still couldn't go certain places. So, for example, in here you have the Holy of Holies. That's the little red circle right in the middle there. And the high priest could only enter that part once a year. The holy place existed just outside of that. And like concentric circles, there were different barriers, different dividing walls. And you could probably argue different dividing walls of hostility because the closer you got to God's holiness the closer, if you were to approach unworthily, you were to death. So there were walls and barriers, which even in God's chosen people, which prevented them from gaining access to God. And this included the one far away, which kept the Gentiles out as well. So to really grasp what's going on in Paul's mind here, we need to understand the two reconciliations that are happening. Right? We're not just reconciling humanity together, but we're also reconciling this new creation to God. He's reconciling a dysfunctional and hostile people, which includes his own people, together as one, and then reconciling this new humanity, this new creation to himself. Now, this has many enormous implications, uh, especially for us here today. And so this takes us to the third and final point where we're going to think through some of these things. Together, Uh, The third point is together we are God's temple where God dwells with Jesus as the cornerstone. Well, being um, part of a family, it often affords certain special privileges that you wouldn't normally get uh, in other circles, like at a friend's house or somewhere else. Uh, For example, free access to the fridge and the pantry. It's a big check, part of a family. Uh, Shoes on the couch... When certain people aren't around, check, definitely, right? Uh, Leaving the place looking like a dump until five minutes before growth group arrives, check. Right, home really is a safe place. It's a place of safety and relaxation. And this is important to understand because when God reconciles us to himself, he doesn't just make us citizens of Israel, though that is one benefit he lists in verse 19. 
But Paul goes one step further than this. In fact, a significant step further than this. And he says that he makes us members of his household. We're family members. God's fridge? Well, this is now yours. Uh, Perhaps you can even put your feet on the couch with the shoes on. I don't know. You have to ask him when you get there. But you're now in. So you share special privileges as sons and daughters of God. You're one of God's children, loved beyond anything you can comprehend. And in some ways, I think this is what Paul's referring to in 118. I'm pull it up there. This is a, a verse from a couple of weeks back. Paul says he, he prays that the eyes of your heart, uh, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And I think part of that is understanding that we are now in, but we're not just in, we're family. So as we sort of draw near uh, to a close here, the first thing I want us to see is that we are members of God's household. Uh, The second thing I want us to see is that as members of God's household, we are built on a strong foundation. Now, Paul, he talks about the foundation being the apostles and prophets, But then he goes on and talks about this curious thing called a cornerstone. And this is the most important part because Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, Paul's illustration here with the cornerstone, it is worth looking at this and unpacking what a cornerstone is. You see, a cornerstone or a chief cornerstone on any building, uh, this was often considered more important than the foundation. It was a large stone that often had to be cut absolutely precisely because it determined where the walls were going to go. It determined if everything else was going to fit together. And if it wasn't right, the entire structure wouldn't hold together. I was going to show uh, a picture of one up there, but the only decent ones I could find were in journals that I didn't have access to, that the librarian in Morning Church said I did have access to, but then I didn't put it in because of youth group and other things like that. But if you Google ancient cornerstones, you'll actually find some of these. This cornerstone is incredibly important. Uh, It is an amazing feat of engineering that holds everything together. And this is important to grasp because Jesus, this cornerstone, is the cornerstone of the building that we are the rest of the building blocks for. And if we know that Jesus is the cornerstone, the perfect chief cornerstone, then we know that we are being built into the perfect temple, a place where God indeed can dwell. Now, if you've been a Christian uh, for any period of time, uh, you'd know that Jesus is God's new temple. Uh, If you read John's Gospel, for example, Jesus uses this analogy. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the little narrator in John's Gospel says he was speaking about his body, right? So Jesus is the new temple. We're not too foreign with that idea. We like that idea because when we think we want to approach God, where do we go? We go to Jesus, is the place that you go to to meet God. But have you ever considered that the church, that God's people, even here in this room this evening, make up this temple too? That God dwells with us here in his church by his spirit. And so as we wrap up, I think it's really worth considering this taking a deep dive into this, really thinking about this idea. And we can ask a lot of important questions when we do. 
You see, when we, when we realize that we are God's temple, that we are where God dwells with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, I want to ask, how important do you think it is that we be reconciled not only to God, but to one another as well? See, in the future of this church, uh, as we grow God willing, we will get bigger, we'll get more people in, and we'll have more people with different ideas about how things should and shouldn't be run. We'll have different people coming in with different ideas of politics and everything else under the sun. And so the question is, if they are professing Christians and we're all growing together, we're all kind of nuts in the fruitcake, we're all ingredients for this new temple, how important do you think it is that we consider not only our reconciliation to God, which is absolutely paramount, but also to one another as well? You see, as Christians, we don't just take the Spirit and have it on an individual basis. We all have access to the Father by one Spirit, which means as brothers and sisters, we should be able to have disagreements and should be able to reconcile. Now, this doesn't mean that we will agree on everything or even on every doctrine in the church. In fact, I think there's plenty of room for disagreement, even over really serious things. But when we reach that stage, right, when we start getting irked or irritated by our fellow brother or sister, do we stop and consider them part of the household of God? How important do you think it is that we, we be reconciled not only to God, but also to one another as well? And I think as we wrap up, this is a good question for you to be talking to one another about uh, over dinner uh, and throughout the week as well. So how about I finish there uh, and lift this up to God in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were far off, without hope, without God in the world, without you, that you didn't stay in the sidelines. Lord, we thank you that you reached out to us through the blood of Jesus and reconciled us in all of our sins and trespasses to you on that cross. Lord, we pray that your spirit will be at work in our lives today and this week. Please help us to understand what it means for us to be one body in Christ, a temple being built with Christ as the cornerstone. Lord, I pray that as we consider how we live our lives this week, help us to consider how this affects our relationships to one another. And Lord, we give so much thanks that you have reconciled us to one another because of Christ, but we thank you more so that you broke down the, the wall of hostility between us and yourself, where your holiness and our sin cannot combine. You had your plan to come, deal with our sin, take it away, and for us to inherit righteousness so we can once again be reconciled to you. And so Lord, we thank you that the veil has now been torn and that we can be entirely reconciled to you and as a result reconciled to one another as well. And I pray this week you would help us to seriously consider what this means for us in our lives. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.